Well, thank you for reading God's Word for us. It is a, a real joy for me to be here to close our summer in the Psalms. And it might be a bit strange or peculiar that we're going to conclude with the first two Psalms uh, in the Psalter. But the reason for that actually is counterintuitive, but, but there is a reason. In these first two Psalms, we get a summary of the major themes of the, the entire book of the Psalms. And so effectively what we're doing is looking at these bigger themes and the, the wonderful preaching that we've received over the last eight weeks uh, will be thematically summed up today. Now you'll notice that I selected two Psalms instead of just one. Uh, maybe you didn't think that you could do such a thing, but I have done such a thing. And so we're going to take a look at both Psalms 1 and 2 today. And again, I have a reason for that. Although in our Bibles there are clearly two different psalms, Psalms 1 and Psalm 2, uh, they go together and you cannot easily pull them apart for a number of reasons. Well, first of all, they work together to introduce the Psalter. And that's uncontested. Uh, pretty much all of the scholars that look at the book of the Psalms will say the same thing, that these two psalms are working together to introduce everything in the 148 psalms that follow. And there's some textual clues as well. There are some word clusters. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you'll see uh, some constellations of words. So in uh, Psalm 1, verse 1, you'll see uh, that the one is blessed who does not stand in the way of sinners. Then you go down to the end of Psalm 1 and verse 6, and we're told that the way of the wicked will perish. And so you, you have the way at the beginning and ending of Psalm 1, and then you go down to the end of Psalm 2 in verse 12, and we're told that you will perish in the way if you follow after the way of the wicked. And so you see that that word is the same in Hebrew that connects these psalms together. A second one would be, and this is less obvious in our English Bibles, in verse 2 of Psalm 1, we're told that the, the righteous person meditates on God's law day and night. That word meditate is repeated in Psalm 2 verse 1, but in your Bibles it might say, why do the peoples plot in vain? But the idea is there's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous person meditates, plots his life based on the Word of God, but the wicked person meditates or plots in vain against the Word of God. And so thematically, you see how those go together. And then finally, you have uh, the word perish that ends both Psalms 1 and 2. Right? The way of the wicked at the end of Psalm 1 will perish. At the end of verse 12 of Psalm 2, we're told that if you don't kiss the Son, and we'll talk about what that means, He'll be angry and you will perish in the way. In fact, the whole phrase is the same, to perish in the way. And so you see, just textually, these two Psalms go together, and that's why we're going to look at them together. Now, I've titled this Psalm, The Beatitudes. But as Pastor Dave said, if you gather a group of Christians together and you ask them to open their Bibles to the Beatitudes, if they've been in the church for very long, where are they going to open? They're probably not going to open their Bibles to Psalm 1 and 2. But they will, if they know their Bible, they'll open to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5. But you know, Jesus was not the one who created the idea of a beatitude. A beatitude is simply a statement of blessing. It's a way of identifying who is blessed. 
If you were a first century Jew before the Sermon on the Mount or before the book of Matthew came in and you gathered in the synagogue and and the rabbi stood up at the front and said, I want you to open to the Beatitudes, you might suppose that most of the people would open their scrolls to the beginning of the Psalter because it was very well known that the Psalms opened with a double Beatitude. This was deeply ingrained in in Jewish tradition and, and thought. And so when Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, he's not starting something new. He's starting his sermon in the same way that he started the book of Psalms. And for those who knew their Old Testaments, who were present at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, they might have made that connection. Said, oh, he's taking us back to the beginning, to Beatitudes. And then everything in the Psalms flows out of this double Beatitude. Likewise, everything in the Sermon on the Mount flows out of those nine Beatitudes that Jesus begins with. So in due course, we'll see if there's any connection that can be made between the two Beatitudes in Psalms 1 and 2 and the nine Beatitudes uh, that we have in Matthew 5. What else is, the last thing I want to note for you here is I want you to see that these Beatitudes create an inclusio. What is an inclusio? It means Psalm 1 begins and Psalm 2 ends with a Beatitude. So it's a little different than the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 in that Jesus gives us a bunch of Beatitudes, nine of them, and then proceeds to his sermon. In Psalms 1 and 2, Psalm 1 begins with the first Beatitude and Psalm 2 ends with the last Beatitude. So let's just take a look at them. And this will introduce for us the two main ideas in this morning's message. So the opening Beatitude is in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So what we get from this initial beatitude is, blessed are those who delight in the law of God. More generally, blessed are those who delight in the Word of God. Now the second beatitude comes at the very end of Psalm chapter 2. So go down to verse 12, and we're told, kiss the Son. The Son is the Davidic King. We're going to explore that more fully. But we, we understand the Davidic King to be Jesus. So kiss Jesus. But don't just kiss Him on the cheek the way Judas did. The idea of this Psalm tells us that we ought to kiss His feet. That He is the King. And so we fall prostrate before Him in in obedience and submission to Him, and we swear our allegiance to Him by kissing His feet. That's the exhortation here. Kiss the Son. Kiss the feet of the King. Otherwise, He will be angry and you will perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Now here's the beatitude. Blessed are all who take refuge in in him. So the second beatitude is blessed are those who take refuge in the Davidic king. With this in mind, would you pray for us and then we'll explore these two beatitudes in greater depth. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us statements of blessing that we might know where to find blessing, how to achieve and, and stand in blessing. But Lord, I pray today as we look at these blessings that You would help us to take an inventory of our lives. I pray that You would draw us into these blessings by Your grace. And I ask You to help me to preach. 
for I am far too weak in myself to do justice to these texts, the glorious beauty of, of the gospel in your word. So Lord, in spite of me, work in me and through me. I pray that you would open the eyes and ready the hearts of everyone who is listening to receive your word through me, but by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would bring blessing to us today. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. So let's take a look at the first beatitude in the book of Psalms. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. We've already looked at that in uh, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So you see here, there's a pretty complicated way of stating who is blessed. And there's both a statement of those who will not find blessing and those who will find blessing. So blessed is the man, not the, guy, the one who does this. And so we're told three things not to do if you want to find blessing. Number one, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Number two, do not stand in the way of scoffers. Number three, do not sit in the seat of scoffers. So I do not stand in the way of sinners. And this idea is, notice that at the beginning you're walking and you get kind of comfortable on your walk and so you stand. And you're surrounded with other sinners and they convince you that this is a good place to be and so you have your seat with them. And you sit among the scoffers. And when you're sitting among the scoffers, you're in company of people who do not delight in the law of God. They do not love God. They do not delight in His Word. And so the psalmist says that's one way to go. The the other way to go is not to follow them. Don't even begin walking in that direction so that you will not stand or sit. Rather, delight in the law of the Lord. And rather than finding yourself in the company of sinners, meditate on His law day and night. Now this opening gives us two paths. Which means that, that this psalm is a wisdom psalm, really. Because the wisdom literature in the Bible says there are two paths to life. You can go the way of the fool, or you can go the way of the wise. And the wisdom literature is obviously exhorting us to go down the path of the, of the wise, not the way of the fool. Delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on His law day and night. Now the psalm then unfolds with some contrasts. Verse 3 will tell us what happens if you take the second road instead of the first. If you delight in the law of the Lord, if you meditate on day and night, verse 3, you will be like a tree. And this tree will be planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That sounds pretty good especially if you're a desert people, right? And Israel, though it's the land of milk and honey, if you get down into Judah, there's a lot of Judean wilderness. So this idea of a tree being planted right on a stream of water, that's a beautiful picture of an unquenching stream of water that helps you to be fruitful. And we're told that you will always prosper like the tree produces fruit if you delight in the law of the Lord. 
So that's one image. Now the contrasting image is if you go down this road uh, with, uh, with the sinners and the scoffers, if you take the, the, the pathway of the fool and you become wicked, you, you, you'll have verses 4 and 5. And six, the wicked are not so. The wicked are not like this tree that is planted by a stream, life-giving water. No, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? Well, if you read your Bibles, you'll, you'll hear of different threshing floors. I know there's a group of women studying the book of Ruth. You know that certain things happen on a threshing floor. But in addition to getting engaged at a threshing floor, which Boaz and Ruth did, you also gather in the sheaves of grain. And when you're on the threshing floor, you beat the grain or you roll over it, you crush it so that you're trying to break it apart. And then on a windy day, you take your pitchfork, you throw it up in the air. And what happens is the grain that you want is heavier than the husks that you've broken off of the grain. And so the husks and all the parts, the stems and the leaves and the things that you don't want from your harvest, that's the chaff. And it's lighter than the grain. And so it blows away. But the grain falls. And so what the psalmist says is the wicked, they think that they're, they're prospering. They think that their life is in the right direction, but they're just like chaff. At the end of, of, of their life, at the end of the age, God is going to come and He's going to gather in the, all of the people, all of us, and He's going to gather us in to His threshing floor. He's going to crush us. He's going to throw our lives up in the air and everything that's useless is going to blow away. Now, if you, if you are you know, delighting in the law of the Lord, there will be something of substance that will fall down and you'll be saved, like the good grain. But the wicked are not like that. They're all chaff. So they entirely blow away because they haven't delighted in the law of God. And come judgment day, there's nothing left to affirm about their lives. We get a... In verse 5 and 6, we get a final contrast. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pretty stark warning. There is a judgment day coming. It may not seem like it today, may not seem like it next week, but every one of us will be present at the day of judgment. And if you haven't delighted in the law of the Lord, if you've gone down the road of, of the wicked, of sinners and scoffers, you're like chaff, and on judgment day, you'll blow away. So everyone, wouldn't we say, would prefer to be a tree? Planted by a life-giving river? Bearing fruit? And prospering? That sounds pretty good. By contrast, you could be chav. Therefore, the implication of this psalm seems pretty self-evident, doesn't it? How would we exhort each other from this? Well, on one level, you just say, delight in the law of the Lord. And, and there's much truth in that. I can stand here and say, it is much better if you delight in the law of the Lord. If you, if you spend time, if you invest your lives getting to know the Word of God, and you say, I want my life to, to somehow be rooted in this. I would love to see a life that's fruitful because I've got my, my roots deep into the Word of God, which is like life-giving water. That's a, a true and a good exhortation from this psalm. 
However, if we look at it a little bit more closely, if we think a little bit more deeply, it's very unsettling what we will come to. Upon further reflection, there's a problem here, isn't there? Who really delights in the law of the Lord? I don't. Not fully. Do you? Can you honestly say that, that when somebody looks at your life, they say, oh, there's a person who, who is captured by the Word of God. I hope in shades. I, I hope that somebody would say that in part of all of us. It, it would say that in part of our church, but, but the standard is so high. The standard is that if you delight in the law of the Lord, you will meditate on it day and night. That's a way of saying always and, and unceasingly. That, that the Word of God is your food. It, it's what consumes you at all times. Is that true of us? I don't think it is. It's not true of me. If that kind of delight, if, if perfect obedience, if, if, if a life that is obedient that comes out of a delight in the law of God is what is required, if night and day meditation is required in order to find blessing, then how can any of us find adequate blessing from this psalm? The standard is too high. Before Christ saved any of us, we hated God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And if we hated God, we definitely did not delight in His Word. So let's just start there. You cannot go out to a group of people with unregenerate hearts who have not been saved and tell them to delight in the Word of God. Now, they might be able to, um, to deceive themselves and others, and they may have a form of, of doing something with the Bible, but it's not biblical delight. It's not finding your life in it. Now, we know that as Christians, uh, a flip has switched. Though we were dead in trespasses and sins, though we were enemies of God, though we did hate Him and we abhorred His Word, we, we hated His Word at the deepest level, truly, uh, something happened and God saved us and we, we were regenerate. We were given a new heart. And in that new heart, God gave us a love for Him and a delight in His law. Okay, now we're getting closer, right? So as Christians, we, I could stand up and say to a group of Christians, delight in the law of the Lord, and you to some measure can do that if you belong to Christ, if you love God. That there, there must be a true, genuine delight in us if we belong to Him. And, and so I can exhort you, but can I, can I exhort you to delight in the law of the Lord totally and fully, perfectly? No. Once we're saved, we remain weak in our flesh, don't we? We fail to do the very thing that we most naturally desire to do. So, so we may want to delight in the law of God, and that might be a true desire, but we find that there's another law at work in our lives, don't we? That when we want to delight in the law of, of the Lord, we also find that we're enticed to, to sin and to do the things that are contrary to the law of the Lord. And when we're enticed to do the things that are contrary to the law of the Lord, we're not delighting in the law of the Lord, not fully. And therefore, we may delight in the law of the Lord in our heart truly, but we see another desire at work in our flesh, don't we? We may meditate on the law of the Lord a little. We may even meditate on it a lot. 
But we also meditate on Netflix and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all sorts of things like that. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently sinful about any of those things, but it's not delighting in the law of the Lord, is it? So, so even when we're not sinning, we're falling short of the ultimate standard of a true, deep, total, enraptured delight that is the pathway to blessing. So what do we do? Well, there's good news for us. And this is where I think the beatitude in Psalm 1 dovetails so nicely with the first two beatitudes in Matthew 5. Because Jesus, knowing that the first beatitude of the Psalter was to, uh, to delight in the law of the Lord, He begins His sermon with another beatitude, and He does not ask us, He does not require us to achieve that standard of delight. And what does He say, in fact, in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew 5.3? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, at first, it doesn't seem like that's the same beatitude. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That sounds very different than blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But I think they're two sides of the same coin. Because we can delight in the law of the Lord as much as we can, but where we fall short, we can give thanks that there is someone who has fully delighted in the law of the Lord, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus came not just to die for us, though He did come to die for us. He came not, not merely to take our sins into Himself and to receive the wrath that we deserve, though He did do that. He also came to delight in the law of the Lord on our behalf. Because when we were dead in trespasses and sin, we could not delight in the law of the Lord. And then even after He saved us and gave us a new heart in our flesh, we were prevented from fully delighting in the law of the Lord. And so Jesus delights in the law of the Lord perfectly for us, and we see in Him a life that exhibits that delight, that He was without sin, that He never said something that the Father didn't say or do something that the Father wasn't doing. He delighted in His Father, and He delighted in the Word of His Father, and He lived it fully. None of us has done that, but He has done it for us. And therefore, He doesn't require that of us. He invites us to delight in the law of the Lord as much as we are able. Increasingly so, hopefully. But where we fall short, He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is to recognize our own poverty. We, we can't do it. I can't do it! I cannot delight in the law of the Lord. So I cannot be like a tree planted by a stream of life-giving water. I, I cannot be fruitful the way that tree is or prosper in all that I do. Except, yes, I can because Jesus has delighted in the law of the Lord for me. He's saying, I just want you to recognize that, that you are poor in spirit. You bring nothing. If you're hoping to be blessed uh, in some works-based delighting in the Lord. If you say, well, I read my Bible, therefore God is honor-bound to bless me. Well, no, it's because Jesus delighted in the Word of God for you. And if you're poor in spirit enough to acknowledge that, He says, I'll give you the kingdom. And so these two go together. The second beatitude in Matthew 5 verse 4 
is related to this. He said, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's a peculiar thing to say. Uh, why would we be blessed if we're grieving, if we're mourning something? And what exactly are we mourning? Well, when we think about uh, verse 3, the first beatitude in Matthew 5, we're mourning our own poverty of spirit. We're mourning the fact that as much as we ought to read our Bibles more, we just don't. We should want to, but we're weak in our flesh. And we mourn that, don't we? And so, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. God will give us the kingdom. Blessed are those who are mourned. Jesus comforts us. He says, it's okay. I know you're not able to do this. I've done it for you. So then now, having gone through all of that, when we read Psalm 1 as Christians, uh, I can stand up here and exhort you to increasingly delight in the law of the Lord, trusting that in your weakness, God's grace is sufficient for you. So notice what I did not do. I did not say, well, let's not even try to delight in the law of the Lord. If you're a Christian, if God has given you a new heart, He's also written the law on your heart. There is a true delight in, the, in your heart for the Word of God. Fan that into flame. Increasingly delight in the law of the Lord, but do it from a position of delight and not duty. Do it because you are received and not because you must do it in order to be received. You're already received because you're poor in spirit and you cannot do the very thing that is the means of blessing. Do it now because it is truly your delight and do it increasingly. God's grace is sufficient for you. So now we come to the second beatitude, which at first doesn't seem related at all. But what I want you to see is the second beatitude depends heavily on the first. These two, they do go together hand in glove. But the second beatitude, if we go down to Chapter or you know, Psalm 2, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The Him being the Son of God. The Son of God being the Davidic King. So who, who are we talking about here? Well, this was written about 3,000 years ago, and initially it was about David. And then it was about Solomon, David's son. And then it was about Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And every Davidic king that reigned in Jerusalem, right up to Jehoiachin, which was the last Davidic king before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, this was uh, written for them and about them. But if you go back and you read First and Second Kings, none of them experienced the promise of this psalm, which is that God would make them the king of all the nations. Solomon got the closest, right? Solomon's kingdom was the biggest, he controlled some of the, the kings around him, but none of them, Solomon included, none of them were the king of all nations, and that's what this psalm is promising. And so this psalm has a prophetic edge to it. it, it it's saying there will be a Davidic king of whom this is true, which means that ultimately this psalm is uniquely fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is the Davidic king. He's a descendant of David. just want to bear that in mind. So then at the very end, when we get the beatitude that says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him, the, the blessing comes to all who take refuge in Jesus. We're going to explore exactly what that means. If we just go up and read verses 10 through 12, I want to give a little context to the beatitude, then we'll come back and go through the whole psalm. Uh, there's a warning at the very end of this psalm. 
Now therefore, O kings, this is directed to all the kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Lay down, you, you king of, of Babylon, you king of Assyria, you king of Egypt, Insert whatever king of whatever nation you want. You king of, of this nation in the world, put yourself face down in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and kiss His feet and acknowledge that He's greater than you. That you depend on Him for your sovereignty, for your authority, for your kingship because Jesus is your king. That's the warning here. If you don't do that, the psalmist continues, He meaning Jesus, will be angry and you, king, will perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Oh, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Those who acknowledge that He is the King. The King of kings. That's the beatitude. So now, let's go back and unpack Psalm 2 to get to this end point. We open up this psalm. It flows perfectly out of Psalm 1 because we have the nations raging. And they're plotting. And what are they raging about? What are they plotting about? They're raging that they, they, are, uh, that they should be constrained by the law of Israel's God. They say, no way, I don't want that. I don't want to be constrained by, by Israel's God's law. They want to take the world for themselves. They want to be a, a, an authority unto themselves. And so they take counsel together. And they're against Israel's God. And they're against Israel's kings. This is what it says. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's Israel's God, and against his anointed. The, the word anointed there is Messiah. Messiah in the New Testament is Christ. So they, they hate Israel's God and they hate Israel's Messiah. Israel's Christ. Israel's King. And this is what they say about Israel's God and Israel's King. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Israel and Israel's King and Israel's God will have no authority over us. Is what the nations say. And let's be honest, that's what we say. That's what we said. There was a time in every one of our lives where we said we want nothing to do with Israel's God and we want nothing to do with Israel's Messiah. We're not going to submit ourselves to their rules, their regulations, their laws, their gospel, their scripture. We're in charge of our own lives, thank you very much. Uh, there, there's a king on the throne of my life and it's me. And so we can't just point the fingers at the kings of the nations. This is for all the peoples of the nations, all the peoples of the world, that every one of us, we, we rage against God before we're saved. 
Psalm goes on, though, and says, well, what's God's response? Is he threatened by this? Uh, does he think that he needs to roll out the red carpet for us? That's just a saying that says, like, does he need to treat us like royalty? Does he need to treat us like celebrities? Does he need to do something in order to convince us to, uh, to, to love him? No. It's quite the opposite. He, he needs nothing from us. We're the ones that are in need. We're the ones that need him. And so... The Lord is not threatened. He's not threatened by the most powerful nations in the world. You know, if you look back over human history, uh, the powerful nations are, are frightful for people like us. If you're caught in the crosshairs of a powerful nation uh, against another powerful nation and you're stuck in that situation, that's fearful. But that's not God's situation. Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Look at them. They're so cute. They think they're so big and powerful. They, they think they don't need me. They, they, they think that they can take the world and keep it. Uh, they, they think that they, they can do whatever they want. Uh, they, they think that they're going to escape judgment. He laughs. He's not threatened. In fact, the Lord holds them in derision. Your day will come. Be your own king now. Take as much land as you can now. Amass as many weapons as you can now. Accumulate as much wealth as you can now. I'm going to hold you in derision. Uh, judgment will come. But then, verse 5, He will speak to them in His wrath. The day is coming. He's not going to let us rebel against Him forever. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. He says, I've chosen my king, and I've made him your king, whether you agree or don't agree, whether you believe it or not. You are under the sovereignty of the Davidic king. You are under the authority of the Christ. I have installed him. I am the, uh, the, the Lord of all the universe. I am the creator of heaven and earth. No one is greater than me. I always have been. I always will be. No one compares to me. I am uniquely, supremely powerful. And I've chosen my king. And he is your king whether you like it or not. And I've installed him on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jerusalem. So the Davidic kings of the Old Testament, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and everyone to Jehoiachin, uh, it didn't feel like it, it didn't look like it, but they were the king of the world. And Jesus, who descends from David, will come back to take back what is his. And he will reign over all the nations. And that's exactly where the psalm goes. The psalm in verses 7 through 9 says that because the Davidic king rules on behalf of the Lord, the Lord gives him dominion over every rebellious nation. Take a look at verses 7 through 9. Now the Davidic king is speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so I want you to hear this in the mouth of Jesus. My father has said to me, you are my son. Didn't he say that at the baptism? At the transfiguration? Didn't he declare it to be so by resurrection? You are my son, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's a promise. Now, this has not happened yet. Not, not totally. But it will. But what about those, those nations that don't want to be under the reign of King Jesus? Well, then He'll take those nations by force. Verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's quite an image, isn't it? When Jesus comes, if there's a nation that does not willingly submit to Him, He will crash them like fragile clay pottery. Now you think about the most impressive, powerful nations on earth today. And they seem so strong. But compared to Jesus, they're like fragile clay pots. And when He comes, He'll crash them, smash them with His rod, His ruling staff of iron. Because he's the king. Now that's the context, right? It takes us back to the beginning. That's the context of the beatitude. And the beatitude is followed or uh, preceded by a warning. Now therefore, all of this being so, the psalmist pleads with the nations, with the rulers and the peoples. He says, this is true. And this being true, I plead with you, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Fall down on your face. Kiss the feet of Jesus, the King of Israel, because He is the King of the world. Otherwise, He will be angry and you will perish in His way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But oh, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Now this wise exhortation, this be wise, O King, kiss the Son, kiss His feet, submit to Him, fits so well with the third and fourth beatitude of Matthew 5. If we go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, we're told, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? To be meek is to have a right understanding of yourself and those of whom God has put in authority over you. It is to rightly understand that God is God and you are not. That's a meek position to hold. It's to recognize that God has put earthly authorities over us and we are right to submit to them. Because God has put them in place, Romans 13. And we therefore need to submit to them as unto the Lord. To be meek though, ultimately, the the fullest sense of meekness is to recognize who is the King of kings. Who is the King of glory? It's Jesus Christ. To be meek is to kiss the feet of Jesus as your supreme authority, as your highest King. And if you do that, you're meek. You know what's amazing? If you go back to the beginning of this psalm, what we said was uh, all of these nations are raging and they're plotting in vain. And what is it that they want? Well, they don't delight in the law of God. And they want 
the earth for themselves. That's what nations do, right? Empires rise and empires fall. And what are they always fighting about? They're always fighting about authority and control. They want the earth. They want land. They want power. They want natural resources. They want wealth. They want fame. They want the earth. You know what's amazing about the third beatitude in Matthew 5 is Jesus says, if you just demonstrate some meekness, if you just recognize that I am the king, I'll give it to you. You want the earth? I didn't come to take it for myself. I came to give it to you. But you have to be meek. And so what people are trying to achieve by rejecting Israel's God and Israel's King and Israel's Scripture, they'll never keep. They may have, have it for a short season, but they won't keep it. It's to the meek who kiss the feet of Jesus, the King of kings, who will inherit the earth. Oh, kings, be wise. Oh, rulers of the earth, be warned. If you want the earth, be meek. And then you'll be blessed and He'll give you the earth, the very thing that your hearts desire. And then, the fourth beatitude in Matthew follows perfectly. Blessed are the righteous, or sorry, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now what do we normally do with, uh, with this? We normally turn it into very individual, very personal, moral righteousness. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for a personal moral righteousness. And I'm not saying that there's not some application in that direction. However, I do find it curious that throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Isaiah, do you know what the job description is for the Messiah? Do you, do you know what, what, what it is that the Davidic king is supposed to do? The Davidic king is to reign with justice and righteousness. And so if you hunger and thirst for that, if you hunger and thirst to live in a nation that is ruled by someone who is exercising justice and righteousness, you will be satisfied if you wait for it, if you kiss the feet of Jesus, if you allow Him. He's saying, look, I'm going to come and I will bring righteous rule. And you know what? There is no nation on earth that, that is fully righteous. Now, some nations are better than others, and we're so fortunate to live in the United Arab Emirates because we have wise and benevolent rulers. But comparatively, when you look at the promise, what, what the Davidic king is to do, he's going to bring in a global righteousness. He's going to govern in righteousness. He's going to bring about righteousness. And that will, that will be the character of his reign. If you are hungry for that kind of reality, or that kind of world, if you're thirsty for that kind of world, what Jesus says is you're blessed because you're going to get it. And Jesus says, I'm going to bring it. That's what my kingship is all about. So you see how perfectly they fit together. So then the exhortation of the first psalm is increasingly increasingly delight in the law of the Lord and trust in the grace of God where you fall short. Now the exhortation coming out of Psalm 2 is be wise. Be warned. Serve the Lord, Israel's God. Kiss the Son, 
Israel's king. Take refuge in Jesus Christ because He's coming back. And if you don't take refuge in Him, when He returns, He will be angry and you will perish in the way for His wrath will be quickly kindled. That's, that's what Psalm 2 is saying. So you want to be blessed? Take refuge in the King. Now, but as we close... I know there's a lot of theology here. There's a lot to think about. But I want to make it concrete. And I want to give you one illustration. I haven't given you any illustrations to this point. I want to give you one illustration that will show you what this looks like. Remember I said that Psalm 1 and 2, they're, they're wisdom psalms. And Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm. And, and wisdom psalms, or wisdom has two paths that you can go down. There's the one path where if you go this way, you're not going to find blessing. If you go that way, you will find blessing. And so I want to give you an illustration of two men. One man walked in the way of the wicked, and he stood in the way of sinners, and he sat in the seat of scoffers. And the other man delighted in the law of the Lord so far as he was able, and he sought refuge in the king. And this illustration comes to us from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. It's a story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And the subtext of the two thieves that hung beside him are Psalms 1 and 2. They beautifully illustrate what I'm trying to help us to see this morning about what it means to be blessed by delighting in the law of the Lord and by seeking refuge in the King. Verse 33 through 43. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right and the other on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the anointed of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? The Messiah? The anointed? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you see Psalm 1 and 2 in the shadow of this episode on the cross? Pilate did not know it, 
but when he wrote, this is the king of the Jews in three languages, he was affirming that the man who hung on the cross under that sign was the Psalm 2 king. Because the king of the Jews is the king of Israel. The king of Israel is the Psalm 2 king. And the Psalm 2 king is the king of the nations. So Pilate did not know what he was doing, but he affirmed, this is the Psalm 2 king. But everyone else scoffed at him. Do you see that? Because they walked in the way of sinners. They sat in the seat of scoffers, and they said, you know, if you're the Psalm 2 king, what are you doing on a cross? Because we know that a Psalm 2 king doesn't end up on a cross. He takes his rod of iron and he smashes kingdoms. So if you are the Psalm 2 king, come down from there. But you can't because you're not. And even the thief, the one thief who went the wrong way, who did not delight in the law of the Lord, who did not take refuge in Jesus, he joined with the rulers and the scoffers, mocking Jesus, saying, you can't be the Psalm 2 king. Evidently, these, these two uh, criminals understood Psalm 1 and 2. You can't be the Psalm 2 king. Otherwise, you could take yourself down off the cross and you could take us off the cross. But you can't do that. He was a fool. He died without blessing. But the other thief, he delighted in the law of the Lord, insofar as his knowledge of the Scriptures helped him to identify rightly who it was that hung on a cross beside him. And he said to his comrade on the other, on the other cross, he said, don't you fear God? We did not delight in the law of God properly in our lives, and we are receiving the just consequence for not delighting in the law of God. Psalm 1 warned us that that would happen. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. He delighted in the law of God. Now, if you read Psalm 1, that should have meant that he would find blessing. But instead, he finds the curse of the cross, and he's crowned with the crown of thorns. He's crowned with the curse of Genesis 3, thorns and thistles. Jesus, the Psalm 2 king who delighted in the law of the Lord, took the curse that we were all under onto himself so that we could find blessing. And the thief who delighted in the law of the Lord so far as he was able, flipped the coin and was poor in spirit. He said, we deserve this. I've got nothing. I've done nothing but to deserve crucifixion. Oh, but I'm going to take refuge in the King. Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the Psalm 2 king who hung on a cross beside him looked at him and blessed him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And we know that that thief inherits the kingdom of God, was comforted, will, will inherit the earth, and will be satisfied. That's what we must emulate we must be like the thief on the cross because we're not that different. Lastly, what was the blessing that the thief received? 
Well, he died on the cross. Which means that if you were raised in a prosperity gospel, or if you're hoping that if you just delight in the law of God and take refuge in Jesus, you're going to be healthy for all of your days. Or or if you think that that's going to make you wealthy, or or you're going to have the best job, or you're going to rise up in the company that you're working in, or you're going to be powerful, or you're going to be famous, or you're going to get more likes on social media than anyone else, if you think that the blessing that you're trying to secure by coming to Christ is of this world, you're shooting for far too little too soon. That's not the blessing that Jesus has promised. That's not the blessing of Psalm 1 and 2. That's not the blessing of Matthew 5. That's not the blessing of the Gospel. The blessing is far greater and lasts longer. It's paradise. It's resurrection from the dead. It's glory. It's everything that God has to give to God, God shares with us. The Father gives everything to the Son, and the Son shares it with us. That's everything. It's the whole universe. We'll we'll judge angels. And everything that God does from this age to every age will be for Him to continually communicate the depth of His love and mercy toward us. So do not trade that for a bigger house or a better job or a bigger bank account or whatever. Hold out for the true blessings Take refuge in the King. Delight in His law so far as you are able and depend entirely on His grace. And then you'll be blessed. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord and blessed are those who take refuge in the King. Let's pray. Oh God, help us. The Gospel can so quickly go through our fingers and we can't hold on to it. Help us to walk in the blessings that are freely given. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never yet delighted in the law of God or never yet taken refuge in Jesus Christ as their ultimate king, I pray they would do that now and receive an eternal inheritance along with your saints. In Jesus' name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we pray these things. Amen.